tonight I'm going to talk about inner protection, how we protect ourselves or try to protect ourselves. And the reason I'm talking about this is that this Friday is a medieval Christian holiday known as Michaelmas, the Feast of St. Michael. Michael was theoretically one of the heads of the archangels. And he's seen as a great Christian protector of souls. And so they they put this holiday right after the equinox as we're journeying into the dark time of the year. The logic is that as we're journeying into the darkness, we need the protection of St. Michael. So that's why protection is on my mind. How do we protect ourselves? What... What do we do when we're trying to protect ourselves? I'll say, I think there's a big tendency in ego to want to protect the good stuff that we have and protect ourselves from bad stuff. You know, protect all the yummy stuff and protect us from all the yucky stuff. And there's a way that this effort kind of runs aground against the first noble truth of Buddhism. The first noble truth of Buddhism says that life is dukkha. Dukkha is a a technical Sanskrit term. Um, Dukkha refers to the fact that, of course, we're wired to crave pleasure, to want to avoid pain. But it's the nature of life that pleasure and pain are somehow sometimes wrapped up with each other, that that yummy and yucky are sometimes wrapped up with each other, that I, I can't pull all the yummy stuff toward me without pulling some yucky stuff toward me also. I can't push all the yucky stuff away without pushing away some of the yummy stuff also. And so dukkha is kind of the, the dis-ease or discomfort we have that we can't just have unadulterated pleasure and no pain in life. And I will say that that dukkha, it's it's not absolute. It's not saying something, you know, rigidly, like every time there's pleasure, right away there's pain. It, it's not that simplistic. Um, within dukkha, we have a certain amount of latitude. You know, certainly I can, if I go out in the world and behave in a very dysfunctional way, I'm setting myself up for a lot of pain and causing pain to myself and others. Whereas if I go out into the world trying to live according to noble qualities, I'll have considerably less pain. I won't be causing gratuitous pain if I'm I'm living according to noble qualities. But the important thing to keep in mind is, no matter how noble I am, there's no get-out-of-jail-free card. Life is still painful. You know, no matter how noble I am, no matter how virtuous I am, there's still going to be painful things in life, and that's part of life. I think there's this very simplistic message that has been communicated in American Christianity that something along the lines of good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And and it's almost this, this 
you know, even if it's not made explicit, it's almost this implicit message that I think a lot of people have that, boy, if I, if I just live a life and I try to be as virtuous and kind and all that as possible, that somehow it will protect me from suffering any tragedies, you know? And I think there's some, sometimes people live with that unconscious assumption for years, and then, of course, a tragedy strikes because, because life is life, and, and they feel almost betrayed, you know, like, I've, I've been a good person this whole time. Why did this happen to me, you know? So I think it's really important to name and dispel that that illusion, you know? When I'm, when I'm living as virtuous as I can, when I'm living noble qualities, it's true that there's a lot of gratuitous extra pain that I'm not causing or not stepping into, um, but it's not protection from all pain. I'll say also that I think sometimes what people want to, what we want to protect ourselves from is either being insult, insulted or being triggered. You know, those, those events that are triggering. We want to protect ourselves so that we're not triggered by, by those nasty things in the world. And there's a very subtle and multi-layered dynamic there that, that's, that's very interesting. First of all, the insult that really lands is an insult that part of us believes. You know, it's an insult that we're somehow bought into already. You know, if I say you're responsible for the death of Leonardo da Vinci, you don't believe that that's an insult because no part of you believes that that's true. You know? But if our inner voice is, you know, has some sort of narrative, you know, inner critic has some sort of narrative like, you know, you're unworthy, you're unlovable, then when we're confronted with that same message out in the world, the world that confirms the message of our inner critic, then that really stings. And I think it's very tricky because, say, if I'm walking around with a message, I am unworthy, you know, and certainly any time that somebody says something that could be construed that way or a situation plays out in a way that I could interpret it as reinforcing that message, then I'm, then I'm triggered and I, I want to avoid that. Um, but of course, if I'm unconsciously carrying that message, chances are very good that in some ways I'm going to be seeking out relationships where that message is enforced. I'm going to be seeking out situations where that message is reinforced. I'm going to tend to interpret any kind of ambiguous message or ambiguous situation as if it were reinforcing the message of my pain. And so there's, there's many, many ways that if I'm not doing my inner work, the very thing that triggers me, I'm going to be unconsciously creating it all over the place, you know? And so the very thing that I want to be protecting myself from, I'm actually unconsciously creating again and again. And so there's tremendous wisdom in the Buddhist teaching. The person who insults you or the person who triggers you is your teacher. And of course, that's the, the absolute last thing we want to hear when we're triggered, you know, that, that, that lovely teaching. 
But really what Buddhism is saying, essentially, the other person doesn't matter. What's going on in the external world doesn't matter, you know. If an event comes up and it triggers this I'm not unworthy message, that's my stuff. That's something I have to face. I have to track down that place within myself. Ultimately, that's a, that's a place within myself that I need to find and love and accept. And by finding and giving it attention and love and acceptance, that's what brings healing. You know, that's what brings true healing and you know, you might say true protection also, because once once I've, as it were, unplugged that inner voice, I am protected from that insult. That insult doesn't land in me anymore. So I think related to this, I want to talk about what Buddhism calls the three refuges. It's a very traditional formulation in Buddhism. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. And I take refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha is the group of people who meditate together, you know, or people, or more loosely, people who are doing the work together, you know. Um, When we're doing our work, we need to be, we need the company of people who are doing their work. We need their feedback. We need their support. We, we need each other in so many ways. That, that's what it is to take refuge in the Sangha, to really recognize how much we need each other. Taking refuge in the Dharma is really, again, the recognition that when we live with noble qualities, I'm not causing myself gratuitous pain. You know, if I'm living unskillfully, I'm going to be causing myself a lot of gratuitous pain. If I'm living with the noble qualities, the qualities in, in line with the Dharma, then that, that is my best chance for happiness in this world, you know, to live according to that. And I think the trickiest for us to understand, especially in this Western culture, is I take refuge in the Buddha. Because the tendency to think of, you know, the Buddha as some, you know, golden-faced hero in the sky is going to protect us, you know, this kind of thing. Taking refuge in the Buddha is, in fact, taking refuge in our capacity for pure presence. You know? And there's a place when we are deeply present, when we really can can silence the mind chatter, calm the, the, the emotional ups and downs, and really be deeply present, there's a way that there's an edge of presence that is untouched by pleasure or fear. And it just is fully present, you know? And what it means to take refuge in the Buddha is to be able to cultivate and relax in that place, that place of pure awareness. So with that, I will hand out the quote sheet. First, I'll give it to the Zoomies here. And are there quote sheets in the room? Ah, very good. I see quote sheets making a passage in the room.
So from Jane Austen, we all, we have all a better guide in ourselves if we would attend to it than any other person can be. And it's true that, that within ourselves, I mean, just trusting our gut, you know, that's something, I mean, part of inner protection is just learning to trust our gut. I remember an energy healer saying, the head is often fooled, the heart is sometimes fooled, the gut is never fooled, you know? But how often do we trust our gut? And how often do we hear our gut, but then our head, we talk ourselves out of it, you know, that kind of thing. From Keats, I'm certain of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of the imagination. And I want to pause on that quote also and say that the word imagination means something a little bit different to Keats than it means for us. When we hear imagination, we, we think it means like making up any crazy thing our head can come up with. That's what Keats would have called the fancy, making any crazy thing your head could come up with. Imagination is different. For Keats, imagination is the capacity to recognize the, the image that forms a symbol for everything going on in this moment in my life. You know, that ability to see an external image or to recognize an internal image and recognize in that image, that is an image that captures this particular life moment. That is the imagination. From Durkheim, the first necessity is that we should have the courage to face life and encounter all that is most perilous in the world. When this is possible, meditation itself becomes the means by which we accept and welcome the demons which arise from the unconscious, a process very different from the practice of concentration on some objects as protection against such forces. Only if we venture repeatedly through zones of annihilation can our contact with what is divine, with what is beyond annihilation, become firm and stable. From Eric Erickson, a, a wonderful essay of his life history in the historical moment. In the end, it seems, psychoanalysis cannot claim to have exhausted its inquiry and demands unconscious unless it asks what may be the inner arrest particular to adulthood, not merely because of the burden of pervasive immaturities, but as a consequence of the adult condition as such whether the times offer too few final choices of an overdefined kind or too many ill-defined exchangeable roles. For it is only too obvious so far, so far in man's total development, adulthood and maturity have rarely been synonymous. That's a hard one. To the idea that, you know, even though he's, he's asking the question, why do people stop growing most people stop growing when they become adults. They become fixed. They become kind of locked in place at that point. And, and is it because there's, there's very few choices or just a bewildering array of choices about what it means to be an adult? He doesn't really answer that question. But he, he points out that many adults, they, they stop there and they don't actually become mature. 
Thich Nhat Hanh said, When you are guided by compassion and loving kindness, you are able to look deeply into the heart of reality and see the truth. Bernie Siegel said, Love and peace of mind do not protect us. They allow us to overcome the problems that life hands us. They teach us to survive, to live now, to have the courage to confront each day. Wayne Dyer said, Peace is the result of retraining your mind to process life as it is, rather than as you think it should be. Jack Cornfield said, Whatever your difficulties, a devastated heart, financial loss, feeling assaulted by conflicts around you, or a seemingly hopeless illness, you can always remember that you are free in every moment to set the compass of your heart to your highest intention. In fact, the two things that you are always free to do, despite your circumstances, are to be present and to be willing to love. Eckhart Tolle said, You find peace not by rearranging the circumstances of your life, but by realizing who you are at the deepest level. Tara Brock said quite simply, presence is the essence of true refuge. Lawrence Gallian said, what are you protecting yourself from? Will you sell your life for fear's price? The poet Louis Erdich says, Life will break you. No one can protect you from that, and living alone won't either, for solitude will also break you with its yearning. You have to love. You have to feel. It is the reason you are on earth. You are here to risk your heart. You are here to be swallowed up. And when it happens that you are broken or betrayed or left or hurt or death brushes near, let yourself sit by an apple tree and listen to the apples falling around you in heaps, wasting their sweetness. Tell yourself you tasted as many as you could. Jennifer Skiff said, There's a reason why people and dogs bite. It's about self-protection. If we respect what we may not know about the suffering of others and look at them compassionately, we can open the door that can lead to understanding. Brene Brown said, Compassionate people ask for what they need. They say no when they need to, and when they say yes, they mean it. They're compassionate because their boundaries keep them out of resentment. And that's a really good boundary question. Does your yes really mean yes? Does your no really mean no? Or do you give the polite yes that really means, well, I'd like to say no, but I want to please you, that kind of thing. Elizabeth Gilbert said, We don't realize that somewhere within us all, There exists a supreme self who is eternally at peace. Zachary Quinto said, I found myself in a pattern of being attracted to people who were somehow unavailable. And what I realized is that I was protecting myself because I equate the idea of connection and love with trauma and death. A couple from Veronica Tulagueva, she said, These times are hard, but I won't walk away jaded, dark, or different. I feel. I cry to heal. If you saw me in in those moments, you may think I was a mess, but I don't call it a mess. I call it strength. 
Real strength isn't about building walls. Real strength is about staying open no matter what. It's about taking life with all the pleasures that fade and all the pain that sticks around for too long and not shutting down, not closing up, not building those walls. Resilience isn't hard, impenetrable iron. Iron. Resilience is flexible, soft, warm. Stay strong, the real kind of strong. Don't let your automatic mind reflexes make you jump away from pain and toward pleasure. Make choices, see clearly, and never, ever stop feeling. Don't go numb. The world, even with all its horrors, is too beautiful to miss. She also said, Most of your healing journey will be about unlearning the patterns of self-protection that once kept you safe. <coughs> From Marnie Coons, she said, The heart is in the infinite divine part of you, your spirit. Your spirit knows who you are and what you're here to do. The heart is your inner knowing, the part of you that transcends mere emotions or intellects and sees and knows the path you need to follow. And Victoria White said, you cannot be afraid to change your, your pivot, to change your pivot when your gut or inner knowing tells you to make a change. It is the illusion of fear or the inability to adapt to change that prevents us from moving forward.